You who are fathers, imagine this scenario. You're on your deathbed. You know that you have minutes or perhaps hours to live. Your children, your family gathers around your bed. You have an opportunity to speak to them. What is, in effect, your dying words? What would you say to your children? In the second chapter of 1 Kings, we read the situation in the words of David. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, and is it written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth and with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. One king speaking to another king. I decided a couple of weeks ago to search out the Old Testament for the record of a godly man and a model father to hold up before me and before you as we gather to worship at this day. And I thought first and most easily of David. I thought of David because he was a man of obvious usefulness to God. I thought that of David because he is one of the Old Testament characters about whom there is an abundance of material and therefore surely something that would be useful for preaching. But then I remembered the troubles that marked David's family and decided that maybe he isn't the model that I'm looking for. And so I went on. Many of the Old Testament names are familiar to many of us. There are the names of men who served as judges and as kings and as prophets. But about many of them, little or nothing is known of their family and their personal lives. And in fact, about many of them, we don't even know if they had children. So obviously they can't be used as a model for fathers to try to imitate. There were some names that came to me that were very easy to eliminate, the names of Lot and Laban and Jephthah. And there are other men in the Old Testament that we might have reason to believe were probably good fathers, but we don't know enough about them as parents to be able to make that claim with confidence. I'm thinking now of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Boaz and Jesse and Job. If you were to join me in my search and we were to discuss our way through the Old Testament, one of us would think of a number of other names. For example, we'd probably take a long look at Isaac and Jacob, two of the three patriarchs of Israel, great men in the history of the heavenly covenant, men with whom God was pleased to identify himself, introducing himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But then we'd remember the obvious and harmful favoritism that each of them showed to their sons, and we'd continue our search. We would think of Moses, 
a man with a strange and obviously providential family history of his own, the greatest leader of the Hebrews in the centuries that separated Abraham from David, one through whom God gave his written law to his people Israel, and by whom he led his people to the very threshold of the promised land. But then one of us would recall that Moses refused to perform one of his most fundamental responsibilities as a Jewish father, and it was left to Zipporah, his wife, to mark their sons as children of the covenant. And we would go on in our search. The name of Saul might occur to one of us, the first king of Israel, but then we would remember that he was a demented man who tried to use his own daughter, Michal, as a snare for his enemy, David. Elkanah, Hannah's husband, but he raised no recorded objection when she sent their son, Samuel, away to serve the rest of his life in the tabernacle. And Hosea, the prophet, was a father who saddled his children with such charming names as unpitied and not my people. And David starts looking better and better as we work our way through the Old Testament. By the way, every once in a while we hear a young believer, a non-believer, say, I tried to read the Bible, and I found in it all kinds of stories about war and lust and murder and famine. Why is all that stuff in the Bible? And it occurred to me, thinking about that this week, that they're treating the Bible as if it's fiction. And why would people make up fiction like this in a book about God? They forget that the Bible is not fiction, it's history. And that stuff is in the Bible because lust and war and famine and all of these other things are very much a part of human experience everywhere, even among the covenant children of God. We come back to David, and there are still some lingering doubts about David being a model father because of our awareness of troubles in the royal household. Many of you will remember that David's oldest son, Ammon, forced himself on Tamar, who was his half-sister, and that two of his sons, one by deceit and the other by outright rebellion, sought her apart or all of their father's authority for themselves. You'll remember that the New Testament says that an elder is to be a man whose children are respectful and well-behaved. And remembering what little we know about David, we would have to agree that if the name of David were to appear as a candidate for elder in the life of this church, many of us would be hard-pressed to vote for him, wouldn't we? But as I look more closely at the family life of David, I learned some things that put all of this in a slightly different perspective. For example, I learned that David was not the father of three sons. He was the father of 19 sons, along with an unidentified number of daughters. And I was reminded that the time in which David reigned as king was a transitional time in Israel, one in which the paranoid reign of Saul, marked by arbitrariness and intrigue, was being replaced by the better ordered but beneficent rule of David, but that the treachery and anarchy that are common to the flesh and had been encouraged by Saul's mismanagement continued to swirl about the new king as he took up his scepter and began to reign. You will remember with me that in many of the Psalms that David wrote, he sees himself as surrounded by enemies, 
like wild dogs. They bay and nip at his feet. Those thought to be friends lifted up their heel against him, and envious they sought for themselves his popularity and his power. And therefore, given the tenor of the times, and given the size of David's family, he is more likely to have been a godly man and a model father than we might at first have thought. And for example, if David is to be blamed for the rebellious behavior of three of his 19 sons, is he not then to receive some credit for the quietness of the scripture about the lives and the values of the remaining 16? In my opinion, the household of David is not the dysfunctional family that it is sometimes portrayed as being, that it was one better managed and more successful in many families of that time. In fact, a man who grew up in that home would later write, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. And he wrote, Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. These are the words of a man with obviously a wholesome view of the family, almost certainly reflecting his memories of his own youth. And these are the words of Solomon, one of the 19 sons of David. If we look closely at the life of David, we'll find there the marks of godly manhood and signs that he was indeed a good father, worthy of our respect, worthy of our imitation. I'd like to look with you at some of those marks and some of those signs. In his last words to his son, he said to Solomon, be strong, prove yourself a man. David was a man. In fact, in the light of parlance common in our time, we might even say of David that he was a man's man. He was a brave, skilled warrior and a natural leader of warriors. Strong women like Michal and Abigail were attracted to him. Powerful men were loyal to him, even at the risk of their own lives. One of the most touching stories in the Old Testament is found in the 23rd of chapter of 2 Samuel. It's a bit of history that describes a time when Israel was at war with the Philistines. And David, who was born in Bethlehem and regarded it as his hometown, knew that the Philistines controlled the land around Bethlehem. He was thinking about the place, and one day he was overheard longing for a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. Three of David's soldiers, having overheard him express that wish, at the risk of their own lives, crept behind enemy lines, stole into the village of Bethany, drew water from that well, and brought it to their king as a gift. And we're told that David was so moved by their loyalty to him, and so overwhelmed by his love for them that he couldn't bring himself to drink that precious water and instead, like an offering, poured it out on the ground. Another evidence of David's true manliness is his frequently displayed respect for authority. We see this particularly in his relationship with his predecessor, King Saul. Saul. 
On several occasions, Saul would gladly have killed David if he had had the opportunity, but by the grace of God, that opportunity never came. But on the other hand, more than once, David had the opportunity to slay Saul, but refused because of respect for his man, for the man, his office, and his place in the kingdom of God. And another sign of David's manliness is the way in which his son Solomon spoke of him. We read the words of Solomon, and wherever he spoke of David, his tone is always respectful and grateful. It is never demeaning. It is never critical. As a man and as a father, we see in David the marks of godly character. His speech was filled with expressions of gratitude and humility. He was a man of integrity whose word was his bond, even when that word had been given hastily and was soon regretted. In 2 Samuel 19, we find King David showing kindness and clemency to a man who had cursed him publicly and treating with warm respect an old man who had nothing to offer the king. His more conspicuous sins are carefully recorded in the divine history. But just as conspicuous are his expressions of sorrow for those sins and his eagerness to know the mercy of God. With all of this in the background of their relationship, David urged his son Solomon to be strong, prove yourself a man. There's a question that we would ask about David. We probably would not have asked it 100 years ago in America. But influenced by our culture, we wondered how David felt about being a father and what he felt about his children. We assign a value to that kind of question today because our culture places a great deal of emphasis on how people feel about things and people and relationships. How they feel about themselves about their spouses and their marriages, about their children or their parents, about their jobs, about the economy, about the future, is all fodder for public opinion polls today. In fact, our emphasis on feelings has become so prominent that the loss of feeling is now commonly regarded as grounds for divorce. And in a setting in which abortion is being debated, someone is bound to ask, how would you feel? If you were pregnant and they made you had a baby you don't want. And so in our culture today, how do you feel is a more important question than what do you know or what do you think? And this is not a bright day for America. The Bible places its emphases elsewhere on faith, on truth, on character, on assumed obligations and incumbent duties which means, among other things, that whenever the church is faithful to its mission and preaches the whole truth of God, its message is increasingly countercultural and offensive to the world in which we live. But it also means that we often have to read between the lines of Scripture and try and turn in our effort to estimate the feelings of its various characters. David, however, is an unusual study for his emotions were more apparent than most. For example, on three occasions, David was told that there had been a death in his family. 
In 2 Samuel 12, we're told of the death of Bathsheba's newborn son. In the next chapter, David is told that all of his sons have been slain. Turns out to be misinformation. In fact, only Ammon had been killed. And in chapter 18, he's told that in spite of his order, that not a hair on Absalom's head should be harmed, Absalom had been slain by David's servant Joab. And then all three instances, David's grief was immediate, it was deep, and it was real. As his experience as a shepherd stands behind his beautiful depiction of the Lord's care for his own people in the 23rd Psalm, so David's experience as a father stands behind his description of God's care for us as a father in Psalm 103. David's words are these. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to his children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Notice how well David understood that a wise father loves his children, not as his equals, but recognizes their youth and their immaturity. He doesn't expect them yet to behave and understand as adults, but remembers their frame. He pities them. His love for them is a condescending kind of love as the greater for the lesser, the older for the younger. These are marvelous statements about the ways in which God loves his own children. These are beautiful principles to apply to the privileges and obligations of earthly fatherhood. And because David was a man of integrity, we can safely assume that he practiced these things before he wrote of them. A good reason to conclude that David indeed was a good father. As a believing man, David prized the law of God. In the 19th Psalm, he wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, gay than much fine gold. As a believer, David prized the law of God. As an older man, as a leader of a nation, as a father, he also saw it to be his duty and opportunity to teach that law to those under his care, particularly to younger men. There are several references to David's desire to be a teacher of the law found in his writings. But in Psalm 145, he proclaimed that one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And in Psalm 34, he wrote, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is that man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
And among David's last words to his son were these, keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments and testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, in order that you might prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. As a man of God, David loved the law or the word of God and sought opportunity to influence others to share his love for the word or the law of God, including his own children. We have good reason to believe that these words spoken from David's deathbed had been heard by Solomon often in the years of his relationship with his father. Solomon, who grew up under the tutelage of this great man of God, wrote in the 22nd proverb, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, as if he remembered the teachings of his own father and had learned their wisdom and value from his own experience with life. God was speaking to believing fathers of every place and every generation when he said of his law, you shall diligently teach these things to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. One of the signs that David was a godly father is that he taught his sons the law of God, both by his life and by his lips. Another area of evidence that David was a godly man and a good father is found in the high value that he attached to the worship of God. The desire to know and to worship God must be planted in the human heart by the Holy Spirit. All we can do as parents is to teach our children the commandments of God, several of which require praise from us and to an extent regulate that worship and show them by our example the importance that we attach to praise. Abel was taught how to worship God by his father Adam. Isaac was taught by his father Abraham, Jacob by his father Isaac. And like a flaming torch, the importance and the ways of worship were passed from generation to generation down through the centuries of sacred history until at last they come to David and then on to Solomon. It was the father David who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of God. It was Solomon the son, standing in the temple at the time of its completion and dedication, who prayed, behold, heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant, O Lord my God. May you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, and when you hear, forgive. That these words came from the heart of Solomon and were acceptable to God, rather than from the pages of some liturgy or form of worship, is indicated by God's response to them, because the Bible says when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled his temple. How often must this father and son have stood together in the worship of God? And how deeply satisfying those times must have been to David and to Solomon as well. In the history of the life of David, we find many signs that he was indeed a godly man and a good father. As a man, faith mixed with natural gifts given by God, 
to make him a natural and effective leader of men. Others sought his friendship and pledged their loyalty to him. His character was marked by humility, his word by integrity, his ways by mercy and kindness. He was a loving father who cared so much for his children that the thought of losing but one of them was devastating to him. And a wise father whose expectations of his children were shaped by his understanding of their youth, their inexperience, and their immaturity, with the results that the standards that he set before him, for before them were not the same as those he accepted for himself. And David was a godly father who loved the law of God and prized the worship of God, faithfully teaching the one and practicing the other, and by the grace of God, seeing the fruit of each born in the life of at least one of his sons. Men, you and I are called to be like David, as men and as fathers. None of us will ever occupy an earthly throne. Few of us will fight a giant or lead an army. Most of us will have fewer than 19 sons, and none of us will leave a mark on history as David did. But that being said, none of us is excused by these differences from the call of God to imitate the faith and the faithfulness of this godly man and this good father. If we accept it, the task before us is a daunting one. Solomon felt small, young and unprepared as he put his father's crown on his own head and began to rule. And early in that period of his life, we're told that he went into the presence of God and he prayed, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. The path toward godly manhood and good fatherhood begins with the humility of recognizing that our assignment is too great for us alone. Not once, but repeatedly, may God be honored by our prayers recognizing this and throwing ourselves upon his mercy that we might know that grace and that wisdom necessary if we are to become the godly men and the good fathers that he calls us to be. Let us pray. Our Father, we understand that the passages of Scripture to which we've been referring this morning are history. They're history of a time about 3,000 years ago, and we might easily wonder what relevance they have for us. And then we read elsewhere in your word that these things not only happened, but they were recorded for our instruction. And therefore, our God, we pray that we might be faithful to your word, to your entire word, that we might learn lessons from the lives of those who have gone before us in order that our desire to be holy and our ability to good, be good might be increased. And especially we pray this for ourselves on this day as men and as fathers. Bless us, we pray, with your wisdom, with a desire for righteousness, with strength, with patience, with all that is required in the task before us. And we ask this, our God, with the hope that your name might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.